All right, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Going back to the beginning here in Romans chapter 1, as we did last week. And I want to direct your attention, especially to the main verses here in Romans chapter 1, the theme verses for the entire letter. Romans 1.16 is here on the screen, but you can also look there in your Bible where the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that he had not yet visited, but was planning on visiting shortly. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now you notice I've highlighted that last phrase, the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's plan still has Israel at the center. The Jewish people are nationally elected by God even today. And while the Apostle Paul might have expected that God's salvation was going to come to Israel much sooner than the 20 centuries that we've had since the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul does know that God will have his people Israel, but that God is showing such amazing grace in the world that he's extending the good news of God's salvation far beyond the borders of Israel, all the way here to the Midwest and Nebraska. So we are among those Gentiles, those Greeks, so to speak, who are also beneficiaries of the power of God, the gospel. And that power of God, it flows through faith. Salvation is not for the Jewish lawkeeper, for there are none. Salvation is not for the Gentile lawkeeper, for there are none. And Paul takes us through that argument in the opening chapters of Romans to show us that the power of God for salvation comes to everyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what a tremendous letter about the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've been studying this year. Don't forget also verse 17. Here I put the Revised Standard Version translation of Romans 1.17 up there because it remains my favorite translation of this verse. Now, I have favorite translations for the whole Bible. This is my favorite translation of this verse. And I think they get it right in a way that is really helpful. It says, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. And that last line, which is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, I think that is the statement of the letter. You could go through every chapter of the letter and He who through faith is righteous shall live is going to be the purpose of that chapter in the letter, just illustrating and teaching that sentence, that truth. If you want one phrase that captures the whole truth of the letter, it's that quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And the life that we live, well, we're going to be getting into that. But before we do, in Romans chapters 12 through 14. We've still got quite a bit left here in Romans 9 through 11. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be finishing this chapter here this morning. Romans chapter 9 verses 30 to 33. And here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is taking the truth of the righteous by faith shall live and he's applying it to Jewish unbelief. If The gospel is the gospel of the scriptures if it's in accordance with all of God's promises and the Jews are God's people who pride themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures and their obedience to the scriptures, then how is it possible that the Jewish people could miss the boat and not be 
saved in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is answering that question and he's showing that it is those who are righteous by faith who are going to live the life that God wants us to live and that Israel's problem is that they are not pursuing righteousness by faith but rather they are pursuing righteousness as if it was by works of the law. So that is our big idea here this morning, the stumbling stone, the people of Israel, they need to be pursuing righteousness by faith, but instead they're stumbling over the stumbling stone. But for those who do receive God's gift of divine righteousness through faith, well, for them there is no shame, but only honor and glory in our future So, let's go ahead and read the passage here. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. Follow along in your Bible as I read it out loud. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So you see there the outline, you see the the big idea that Paul's getting across to us. In contrast to the previous part of the chapter, the first large section of Romans chapter 9, where Paul explains that Israel is not saved because they are not personally elect, that the Jews in Paul's day, even though they're a part of the elect nation, were not personally elected by God to salvation. That's looking at the answer from the divine side of things. But looking at it from the human side of things, the people of Israel, the large number of Jewish people in Paul's day, were not saved because they were pursuing righteousness the wrong way. They didn't think that they needed a grace-given righteousness, they thought that they could attain righteousness by their obedience to God's law. That's what Paul begins to explain here at the end of Romans 9, which really could have been appended to Romans chapter 10. You could have ended Romans chapter 9 a little earlier because this last section really does flow into chapter 10. It's kind of an unfortunate chapter break. And you have to keep that in mind when you're reading the Bible, is that the chapter breaks were not written by Paul or Peter. When they wrote the scriptures, they didn't have any chapters, and that you just have to follow the logic of the argument, and not always is the chapter break put in the most perfect spot. So let's look at the first part of our outline here, where Paul reiterates that righteousness is by Faith. This has been the argument of Paul in his early part of his letter. From after the introduction in Romans 1.18, from there on up until Romans chapter 4, through Romans chapter 4, Paul was showing that righteousness is by faith and not by works. That the Gentiles were lost in sin, that the Jews were sinners in need of God's righteous salvation, and that all of mankind was under the curse of God's law for our sins against his righteous standard. And so, Paul comes back to that key idea that was developed in Romans 2, 3, and 4 here when he explains why the Gentiles seem to be the ones who, by and large, are the ones who are in the church, and while the Jews are a small minority within the church. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. So this is looking at things from the cultural perspective, from the human perspective. People would look at the, the Gentiles, the, the pagan nations, and say, well, they're not pursuing this Jewish God. They're pursuing the pagan gods. And they don't live by the same moral standard that the Jewish people live by. Kind of like in our culture, we've got a division in our culture of two different ways of thinking, two different ways of living, two different moral standards. And so you would look and you'd say, well, those Christians, they've got this moral standard, and the non-Christians, the secularists, the atheists, they've got a different moral standard. And, and that's kind of how it was in the ancient world. Not that you had atheists and Christians, but you had pagans, polytheists, and the Jewish monotheists, and they did have different worldview, different ethical standard. And so when people see all of these pagans becoming Christians and the Jewish people not accepting Christ, people are left scratching their head. It's like, well, that's weird. It's weird that you would have this cultural group accepting the message and this cultural group largely rejecting the message. And so Paul's talking about that when he says, what shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? They weren't even trying to live like Jewish people. They were out there doing their pagan thing. And, and yet somehow now they've been transformed and they've got a new way of living. Whereas those who are Israel, those who were pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, this truth that the people of Israel did not succeed in reaching that law is not unique to this passage. This is something that Paul had taught earlier, Paul teaches in other places, but of course Paul was not the one who invented this idea that the Jewish people were not keeping the law. It predates his conversion, as we will see. Come with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. I put one of the verses up there for you, but I want you to see the whole context, so it helps if you turn in your Bibles and see it for yourself. Acts chapter 7, and I want to start in verse 51 and read down to verse 53. Now what we have here in the book of Acts is the history of the early church. And in Acts chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is not yet a Christian. He is a Jewish law keeper. He is a student of the Pharisees. He has been taught by some of the most preeminent doctors of the law in Judaism. And he is very zealous for the law. But here in Acts chapter 7, Paul is a side character and the main character in this chapter is a man named Stephen. Stephen was one of the early church disciples. He's got a Greek name, but he's a Jewish man, so he's one of these Hellenized. And Stephen, he's preaching to the Jewish people, and as he is giving his defense throughout the chapter, he reiterates the story of God's dealings with the people of Israel through the first 50 verses here, he's telling the history of Israel from their beginning up until the time of Solomon and the building of the temple. And then he makes his transition in verse 51 to talk about the Jews of his generation. And now Stephen, he turns to the Jews and he looks them in the face as they've been opposing the message that he's preaching and this new group that he's a part of. And he looks at them in verse 51 and he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now that's a big insult, okay? Because the Jewish people prided themselves that they were the circumcision. And those, those pagans out there, those were the uncircumcision, okay? And here, just like the Old Testament prophets, just like Moses, 
Stephen says, you're still the same rebellious people that you were back then. You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Yeah, you've got the physical circumcision, but you don't have the heart. Your spirit is all wrong. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Here's that courage. Here's that boldness that I was talking about last week. Are you willing to look a religious person in the eye and say that, that you are resisting God? As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Well, that's anti-Semitism, Stephen. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You received the law, but you did not keep it. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. He says the Jews, they were pursuing this law for righteousness, but they did not attain it. They received a law that is righteous. Paul affirms, along with Stephen and along with Jesus, that the law is perfect and right and good, that it comes from God, and that if you follow the law, you will be perfect. I was at a Bible study this week. I was teaching in Romans and righteousness by faith, and one of the participants in the Bible study said, well, didn't Jesus say, when he was asked the question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said, keep the commandments. That's right, that's what he said. I said, exactly. And I asked her, how have you done with that? Have you kept the commandments? And she said, well, you know, most of the time. And I said, well, how does that work in God's courtroom? Because if, if you go before the judge today, and you're accused of a crime, and you say, well, judge, most of the time I've kept the law. Is that a good defense for breaking the law? No, that's not a good defense for breaking the law. It's, the judge is not deciding, have you kept the law most of the time? The judge is deciding, have you broken the law? And it's no different in God's court. You'll stand before him and he will ask, have you lied? Have you dishonored your parents? Have you coveted what I have given to other people with a greedy heart? Have you put other gods before me in an idolatrous fashion? And you will be guilty. And I will be guilty. We're all guilty. That's the point. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across to the Jewish people in his day. The same message that Stephen is preaching, the same message that Paul is preaching, is that you have not kept the law. Yes, it's true. If you keep the law, you will live. But you don't keep the law. And so you need a different pathway to life. You need the pathway of grace, the pathway of faith, the pathway of the gospel. That's what Paul is contrasting here. That's what Stephen is doing. In order to get people onto the right path, you have to tell them that they're on the wrong path. You can't get somebody to change paths unless they think there's a reason for it. Unless they think that it would be beneficial to them to do so. They're committed, they've been doing, they've been putting energy into this. The Apostle Paul devoted his whole life to Judaism and keeping the law before he was saved. He had a lot of sunk cost in his Jewish education. He had a lot of sunk cost in his Jewish friendships. He had put everything into this life and to convince him that he needed to throw that all away in order to go a new direction. Well, you're going to have to be convinced that that path goes 
nowhere except death. That's the only thing that would make a man give up everything that he's invested in order for a new life to start that's going to cost him the way that it cost the Apostle Paul. You've got to tell people that they are on the wrong path if you're going to get them on the right path. And so you might look at Stephen and say, well, Stephen, you sound like a, a spiteful, hateful person pointing the finger at people and calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, accusing them of murdering the righteous one and not keeping God's law. What an unloving thing to do. And you'd be exactly wrong. It's the only loving thing to do for those who are on the pathway that leads to death. It's the only loving thing to do. And if you don't do it, then you are the one who is hating your neighbor. You might feel like you're loving your neighbor, but it doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is, are you telling someone what they need to hear in order for their life to be saved? So, Stephen does it here. I want you also to see the Lord Jesus Christ doing this back in the Gospel of John. Turn with me also to John chapter 7. I encourage you to spend time in the Gospels, spend time in the book of Acts, look at the way that Jesus and his apostles evangelized. Look at the way that they proclaimed Christ. We want to do it as much like them as possible. Now, you're not always speaking to the same audience that they're speaking. So you have to, to think about, well, am I, am I speaking to a sinner and a tax collector who knows that he needs God's grace and forgiveness? Or am I speaking to a Pharisee and a self-righteous person who doesn't know that he needs God's mercy and forgiveness? So you're going to have to tailor your message to your audience, but people really haven't changed that much. You've still got the self-righteous and you've still got the sinners. And notice that Jesus speaks to those two groups of people very differently. Very differently. And so try to imitate that. Try to discern, who am I talking to? And how am I supposed to talk with them if I'm going to be talking the way that Jesus did? All right. So here in John chapter 7, let's pick it up there in verse 14. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He hasn't been to school. He hasn't sat under Gamaliel. How does this guy know so much? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. That is a great line. That is so true. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Now, what does Jesus say next? And why? Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? See what Stephen said. You've got this law. It's from the angels. It's from Moses. It's from God. But you haven't kept it. None of you have kept it. And the greatest illustration of the fact that the Jewish people utterly failed to keep God's law is that they killed the righteous one. The one man that they shouldn't kill, the one man who doesn't deserve death on the face of the earth, he's the one that they put to death. And we all deserve death for our sins if God was going to judge us. Jesus Christ was the man who did not deserve death. He deserved life. He deserved honor. He deserved worship. He deserved praise. And to 
cast him out with the criminals on the cross, well, that is the perfect illustration of how the Jewish people failed to keep God's commandments. Think through the Ten Commandments and think through the execution of Jesus Christ, the trials that led up to his execution. How many of the Ten Commandments were broken in the most egregious fashion in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Now, not only here in John chapter 7, but I also want you to see it in Matthew chapter 5. One more. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 20. Didn't Jesus say that if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments? Well, of course he did say that. Why did he say it? What was he hoping to accomplish by telling us that truth? Because it is true. Here in Matthew chapter 5, I want to pick it up there in verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to understand this, you've got to think about it in their context. You've got to get into the Jewish mindset. Jesus is teaching first century Jews here. The Bible is always understood in its context. And so the common Jewish man listening to this sermon that Jesus preached out in the open air preaching, he hears that I have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees if I'm going to enter into God's kingdom. And and you know what the common man thinks? He says, well, that's it for me. I'm done for. I'm not going into the kingdom. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they devoted their whole life to teaching and obeying the commandments. I, I can't devote my whole life to it. I got a job to work and I got a family to feed and I just can't live up to that kind of standard. Jesus is here pointing out that the scribes and the Pharisees, what they've actually done is they have lowered God's standard. And this would be, you know, just eye opening for the for the Jewish people, because the Jewish people thought, man, the standard that the scribes and the Pharisees set, it's just too high for for us normal human beings. I mean, that's just for those super spiritual people that can attain to that kind of standard. And Jesus says, well, actually, no. The standard of God is higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They've relaxed the commandments, and they're teaching other people to relax the commandments. You say, well, what, what kind of example does he give? Well, he talks about how the Bible says you should honor your father and your mother. But the Jewish teachers of the law said that if you gave money to God, the temple, the religious people, you know, that's who ultimately their money goes to, right? The priests. Then you don't owe any money to your parents. You could say, well, the money I was going to give to support my parents in their old age when they can't work anymore because they didn't have, you know, IRAs and pensions and all of that, that that money that I was going to use to take care of my parents, well, I gave that to God. So I don't have to take care of my parents now. That was lowering the standard of righteousness. That was a man-made standard of righteousness. And and Jesus Christ says, God hates that. You're not getting into the kingdom of heaven with that kind of righteousness. And that's the way it is with, with most religious people in the world. 
They're living according to a standard, but it's not God's standard. God's law requires perfection. Look at what continues here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gives examples. He says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the rest of the chapter gives examples about murder and anger, about lust in the heart, about divorce. Now, you start going out to people on the street and you talk about their anger problem. You start talking about their lust. You start talking about their divorces and their broken relationships. You talk about their oaths and their lies. And you talk about how they have been vengeful and they have not loved their enemies. And you find out, well, you know what? The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? People are still sinners. People still sin. But notice what Jesus said in verse 48. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he goes on and explains it even more throughout the rest of the sermon. I mean, the whole sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, is about the standard that God sets for the Christian life. And most people, they'd, they'd look at this and they'd be like, well, that's just too much. It's, I can't do it. And they're right. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be born again. That's why we need forgiveness of sins. That's why we need the new covenant. That's why we need Jesus Christ and every blessing that's found in him so we can live this life. Those who are righteous by faith will live. You'll forgive those who hurt you. You'll love your enemies. You'll be faithful to your spouse. You'll be able to do the commandments of God, not the human version of them that lowers it down to what sinners can do, you'll be able to live out the commandments of God with the power of God working within you, a power that is able to do more than anyone could ever ask or think. That's the message of grace. That's the message of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness of sins, although of course we need that, but it is power, power to live the way that Jesus Christ lived, to be his disciples, to obey everything that he commanded. Go into all the world and make disciples. People who are sinners and who are forgiven. No, that's not what he said. Go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you. And people say, well, that's legalism that you're preaching there, Timothy. I thought, I thought we weren't righteous by keeping God's law. Of course we're not righteous by keeping God's law. We're saved so that we can keep God's law. The law of Christ, written on the heart. The new man is not burdened by the law of God. The new man with the law of Christ in his heart is rejoicing to do what's right. What the Bible says is this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you come to church and you feel like, man, Timothy's loading me down with all these burdensome commandments from God's word, either I'm not doing it right or you're not listening right. If you're going away from church feeling burdened, something's wrong. So, well, you know, i got this burden, i got to share the gospel with everybody, and i got to do it perfectly, just like, you know, they do on the videos, and, and i got this burden that i I got to pray for everybody, and I don't pray enough, and, and i got this burden that i got to show hospitality, and I don't have time to show hospitality, and i got all this burden that's being pushed on me by, by God's Word. That's not how it works. If you've got the Spirit of God, you don't have this heavy burden. Jesus Christ said, I've come that you could have life and have it to the fullest. I've come so that you can have my yoke put upon you, and my yoke is light. 
You say, well, how can you say your yoke is light, Jesus Christ, when, when the Pharisees have lowered the standard, and that already seems impossible. Now you're going to raise the standard and make it light? How does that work? Grace, power, Holy Spirit. That's the difference. That's the difference. Whether you're doing it by faith or you're not doing it by faith. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 9. The Jewish people were pursuing it apart from trust in God, trust in his promises, trust in his son. And yeah, that's a burden. That's a burden that no one can bear. You were never meant to live the life of Jesus Christ without Jesus Christ. You were never meant to live the life of the Spirit without the Holy Spirit. You were never meant to live a godly life without God. You were meant to live with him, in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're the sail, he's the wind. Try to move the ship without the wind and it's pretty burdensome. But once the wind is in the sail, that ship just flies. All right, so Israel had this law that they were pursuing to attain righteousness. And the whole purpose of that law was to show them that they can't, that they couldn't, that they never would keep the law. And that was why the promised Savior was sent to them the Savior that they rejected, lied against, and had put to death. Back in Romans 9. Now, as Paul is explaining Jewish unbelief, that they were pursuing the law, but they didn't attain that law, they didn't reach that standard, as Jesus taught, as Stephen taught, as Paul learned, He comes back to this in Romans chapter 11. If you just go a page or so ahead, in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, Paul will kind of conclude this argument after we get a lot more details in chapter 10 by saying, what then? Again, he started off in verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? Kind of coming back to that same idea. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They failed to obtain righteousness, a good standing with God. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So you can look at it from the divine side, you can look at it from the human side. Both are true. Now our second point in our outline has to do with verses 32 and 33. And this is a quotation from Isaiah. Yes, thank you, Paul. You're always taking us back to Isaiah. I do appreciate that. Now, let's look again at verses 32 and 33 about the stone. We'll read the quotations here. I put the references up on the screen. It's two verses in Isaiah that Paul is putting together, chapter 28, verse 16, and chapter 8, verse 14. So let's see that in the text. You see that Israel was not pursuing it, what? Righteousness, by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So there he brings in the stumbling stone. They've stumbled over this stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That last part gets its own point on the outline, and it's part of the quotation. But we're just going to focus first on this stumbling stone. What is Paul talking about, and what was Isaiah talking about, and how does this connect? Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28 in your Bibles. Now, Jesus is the one who gave the apostles this understanding of himself as this stumbling stone. 
there's a number of texts throughout the Old Testament that most likely Jesus put together when he was on the earth and he was explaining to the disciples how all the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him, he pulled out these verses, as he did during his earthly ministry as well, to show them that these verses were about him. Let's see if that is true. Isaiah chapter 28, the verse that's quoted is verse 16, but you see the section starts there in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord says, the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. The people who rule, the people who are in positions of authority and power in Isaiah's day, had a covenant with death. They had made a covenant with Sheol. Instead of finding security in the light, they've turned towards the darkness. They believe in power, they believe in destruction, they believe in death, they've seen that. And so they think they can make a covenant with death. They can have a deal with the darkness in order to make sure that the calamities that fall on everyone else don't hurt them. The rich man's wealth is a fortress in his mind the book of Proverbs says. People in this nation who are in positions of power and authority, they think, well, yeah, things might get bad, but not for us. We've got protection. We've got power. We've got money. We've got things set up so that even if everything goes bad for you peons, we'll be all right. All right? So the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And the people who are in positions of power and authority don't think that they're not making deals with death. Okay? They're, they're dealing with death. They're wheeling and dealing. We also talk about deals with Satan. So the scoffers, they scoff at those who trust in the word of the Lord. They are the ones who rule in places of power. The people who are most scoffing at godliness are those who are in highest positions of power and authority. It's true then, it's true now. And he said, pick it up again there in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, and you look for, what does God think now? What is God saying now? What does the Spirit of God say now? Well, what God recorded then gives you the insight and the knowledge into what God is saying now. What he looks on the rulers of this people, what is he thinking? He says, behold, I am the one, the Lord God says, who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And keep reading. I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. People take refuge in lies, and God is going to sweep it away with a hailstorm, and waters will overwhelm that shelter. Then your covenants with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. And he goes on. But you get the idea. So, there's the refuge of lies, the covenant with death, or there's the stone that God has placed. 
and you will either choose one or the other as your place of refuge. That's what the stone is in Isaiah chapter 28. It's a stone in Zion, God's holy city, where God made a covenant with David that David and his descendants would be king over God's people forever. That is the context. Zion is an important reference there, and those who properly understand Scripture know that is a reference to the Davidic covenant, the promises of God. Come with me also then to Isaiah chapter 8. The second verse that is connected here by Paul is another stone reference in Isaiah chapter 8. Now these passages in Isaiah are not the only significant passages about this stone in the Old Testament. There's also Psalm 118, verse 22, is very significant. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. And you could also look up Isaiah 51, verses 1 and following. But we don't have time for all that, so let's just look at the one that Paul actually quotes. Isaiah 8, verse 14. Pick it up in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me, God is warning the godly person to not walk in the way of this people. God warned Isaiah, don't walk in the way of this people. And the Spirit of God says that today. Don't walk in the way of this people. He says, don't call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. People are in fear. People are in dread. People are worried about the conspiracies that are going on. You know, there was a conspiracy in Isaiah's day to get rid of the Davidic king and to replace him with some other puppet king. And the king was all in a tizzy. He was all worried about this conspiracy. Do people conspire? Of course people conspire. Oh no, people wouldn't do that. All the people in positions of power and authority, they just want what's best for you. They care about you. They love you. They would lay down their life for you. They would never make a conspiracy to help themselves and increase their own power and money. Oh, no. Don't be one of those crazy people that believes that. But you're not supposed to be in dread of their conspiracies. Don't let their conspiracies throw you in a tizzy. It doesn't matter what they plot. It doesn't matter what they plan. God is wiser than them. And God is wiser than the devil with whom they're dealing. The Lord of hosts says this, Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You have this option, once again, just like Isaiah 28. You fear man, or you fear God. You take refuge in God or you take refuge in the lies of mankind. Those are your options. It's only two. And for those who do not choose the stone that God has placed in Zion, well, that stone will destroy them. If you choose not to be afraid of the conspiracies of mankind, they will not destroy you. If you choose not to be afraid of God's Son, He will destroy you. Who you fear is very important. Do not be in fear. Do not be in dread. Let God be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Who do you fear? Who's in control? Who's got the power? 
Whose side do you need to be on? Do you need to be on their side or do you need to be on God's side? Who's going to come out on top? Be wise. Be wise. Turn with me also to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. This was our scripture reading last week because I thought I was going to get this far last week. I'm hardly getting there this week. 1 Peter chapter 2 is one of the New Testament passages where we also have this stone, this cornerstone, this stumbling stone. Peter got it from Jesus. Paul got it from Jesus and the Christians that he fellowshiped with. And Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 21. You can also read about it in Acts chapter 4. So this is a constant repeated theme in the New Testament. But let's just look at Peter's example here. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, this is not a command, this is just a description of what Christians do. We come to him. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. What a great way to introduce a Scripture quote. It stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he continues with some other stone references. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All right, so come back to Romans chapter 9. Let's wrap this up and put a bow on it. You see that Paul and Peter, they're preaching the same message. They're preaching the same stumbling stone. If you take refuge in God's stone, you will not be ashamed. If you take refuge in the lies of mankind, you will be put to shame. God will see to that. Notice that last line. Gave it its own point on the outline. No shame. People believed lies about what was going to happen when all of the clocks were going to turn over to a new millennium. Back in 1999, there was a lot of worry and fear that the world system was going to come grinding to a halt and there'd be all kinds of disasters that would come about because our clocks were not designed, our computers were not designed for the year 2000. They were just programmed for 1999 and after that, it's like, what are the computers going to do? They're all going to just fizzle and break because this flaw in the programming. And so a lot of people, they believed that. And they, they started to sell their house and move out and become self-sufficient. And, and they had this fear that society was going to fall apart. And when it didn't, and I went to the gas station at like 12.15, right after the new year hit, and the gas pump was working just fine. I turned on my computer the next day, it was fine. Now that's not to say that there'll never be a disaster. But the point is, is that when you believe something is going to happen and you put a lot of time and money telling people about it and investing in it and then it doesn't happen, you look pretty stupid. Right? And so that's what people think Christians are. And that's what you guys are. You these Y2K preppers. You say the sky's falling. 
You say God's going to come and judge the world and it's not going to happen and you're going to look pretty stupid. And we go back to what the Word of God says. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And we say, just wait. Just wait. We'll see who was wise and who was foolish.